We're going to get into Hebrews, so let's open up with a word of prayer and we will get going. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have here tonight to get into your word, Lord. I thank you that beyond anything else in this world, with all the chaos that's going on, that your word is true and we can count on it. And Father, I just ask that your spirit move in this place tonight as we get into the book of Hebrews, that you open it up to us in a way that we can understand it and apply it to our lives, Lord, that we can be effective for your kingdom, Lord, and we give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, excuse me, tonight is just going to be an overview of the book of Hebrews to give you an idea of the theme behind it because we have to understand that before we get too crazy, too into the weeds with it. Now, one thing I will say is we are recording this. I I had some people ask that if we would, that way if they couldn't be here, it'll be out online on on iTunes and on the podcast and stuff like that. So that will be available. Hopefully we'll have this one up tomorrow if you want to go back and re-listen to it. So um, another thing here, I just noticed that the PowerPoint apparently shifted my formatting so these are going to be a little goofy on the first couple of slides but that's okay so the book of hebrews when we get into it we break it down what is the book of hebrews about it is about a better covenant it's the new covenant it in and of itself is talking about this new covenant now to understand that we have to understand what the old covenant is and what it refers to which it refers to the mosaic covenant the covenant that God cut with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. So let's just talk about that for a minute. In Exodus, they leave Pharaoh. As a matter of fact, um, there is a documentary out called Patterns of Evidence that is a, uh, talks about the Exodus itself and their escape and whatnot. Uh, very, very well done showing archaeological evidence and stuff because they say that this event didn't happen. They can't find anything about Moses in history. They can't find anything about a nation such as the Israelites being in Egypt, especially at the time that they're saying. And so anyway, great. Uh, it, was, it was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is, but it was on there. If you get a chance to watch it, I highly encourage it. He's got another one coming out next month, and I can't remember what that's about, but uh, we're going to take a group of us there. So I'll give you more details about that. The bottom line here is we have a better covenant based on better promises. That old covenant was cut with the nation of Israel, saying it's where we get the Ten Commandments and things like that. That God says, Israel, you will be my people, I will be your God. You will be blessed, you'll have all of these things, but you've got to do everything that I say to do. Do you agree? Israel says, yes, we do. God says, okay, cut the covenant, the Ten Commandments, that whole thing. Obviously, I'm just going through this quickly. And immediately as he comes down, they'd already broken the covenant. And they continue to break the covenant, and they break the covenant, and they break the covenant, and they continue to break the covenant. That, when it talks about the old covenant in the New Testament, when it talks about it in the book of Hebrews, that is what it's referring to. We call it the law, you can call it whatever you want. The bottom line here is that the covenant that in the book of Hebrews is talking about is based off the work of Jesus. So you had a breakable covenant between the nation of Israel and God with the Mosaic covenant. Here we have a covenant that is cut between the Father and the Son on our behalf. So can it be broken? No, because if it could be broken, that would make God a liar. The reason that the Mosaic covenant could be broken is because it was based off of what God said and what the nation of Israel could do. And it was broken immediately. Every covenant that could be broken by man that was cut with God was broken. There was a covenant with Adam and Eve, right? Do not eat of this tree. What do they do? Ate of that tree. So on and so forth. So this is a better covenant. We have a better sanctuary. We have a better sacrifice. 
And you'll see this. It gets into all of, of this stuff. It's got a very Jewish flavor. So we've got Jesus is the new and better deliverer, talking about Moses and, and the, uh, the contrast there. He's better than the angels. There's warnings. And these are the chapters. These are supposed to correspond with one another a little bit. And they're not doing that. I apologize. I will get that fixed. And I will have a sheet that I will print for you guys next week. So you don't have to try to untangle my mess here, but I will fix that. But the apostles are better than Moses, or an apostle that is better than Moses, a leader that is better than Joshua. You've got five warnings that are in here. And again, when we get into the context of it, you'll understand this more. And so, and that we have a priest that is better than Aaron. Now, those are fighting words to the Jews, especially at this point, because the Aaronic priesthood was the priesthood of the high priest. So it wasn't, you had the Levitical priesthood, the Levites, but the high priest could only come from the family of Aaron, which was Moses' brother. And that high priest, on the Day of Atonement, we know what he would do, right? He would sacrifice on behalf of the nation, but he first have to sacrifice on for himself. And that is making a contrast in the book of Hebrews about how you have man-made priests and a temple made with hands, and then you've got the great high priest who was the perfect offerer of the sacrifice, and he was the perfect offering he was the sacrifice. So you got to understand that. Better covenant, better sanctuary, better sacrifice. There's a lot of practical applications in this. And then we get into the warnings and, and whatnot and the hall of faith, right? By faith, God, or Abraham. By faith, this guy. By faith, that guy. It goes through all of this stuff, um, you know, just what we call it, the hall of faith. All of these things are here important. And it's talking about endurance until the end. We talked about in the last series we were teaching on Sunday morning is that well done, thou good and faithful servant. And what is that referencing? It's referencing money. Here we talk about this, this endurance to the end. Because Hebrews, there is not a book, in my opinion, in the New Testament, I'm throwing Revelation out of the equation, that is more misunderstood and more argued about at all. And the reason for it is understanding the covenants that we have. We have to understand covenants. We also have to understand salvation and how one earns it. We're going to talk about that at the end today. So when we get into this, what we need to understand is that we have all the epistles. The epistles are basically the entirety of the New Testament with the exception of the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation. The epistles are written by the apostles. There are what we call Hebrew epistles. Okay, There's eight of them. There's James, there's First and Second Peter, there's First through Third John, there's the book of Jude, and of course, the book of Hebrews. So we need to look at this and say, okay, now why are these called Hebrew epistles? Well, the reason is, is because you've got to remember who these guys were. James was the brother of Jesus, and he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's later killed for that. He was not a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. Again, giving a little um, concrete evidence of the fact that Jesus really did die and really did rise from the grave. But being a pastor in Jerusalem, who are you think he's dealing with primarily? Jews. Jews. Who's the new covenant cut with? It's for the Jews. For the Jews first. First and second Peter. Peter, again, dealt primarily with Jews. We only see him in Acts chapter 10 when he deals with Cornelius. Um, but outside of that, and you know that he and Paul got into it. Because he still was ignoring the Gentiles. First through third John, you can read those at your leisure. Of course, the book of Jude uh, has a reference to the book of Enoch. Um, lots of different things that are going on here. These are called the Hebrew epistles because they are written to Jewish believers, primarily. 
There's always going to be Gentiles in there as well. And let's just make sure that everybody's on the same page when we talk about our terms. We talk about Jewish and Gentile. If you are not born a Jew, that makes you a Gentile. That's it. So you've got an ethnicity thing. You also have a religious thing because a Gentile could become a proselyte Jew, but in order to do so, they would have to forsake all their other gods and the nation in which they came from and would come and be one with Israel. They would go to synagogue. They could go into the temple area, but not into the temple with the other ones. Now, and you'll see it argued that, listen, you need to treat these guys as if they were naturally born Jews, but they never really did. So all of these are the Hebrew epistles, okay? Hebrews primarily is what, obviously what we're focused on, but what we want to look at here is what on earth is this and why? And so when we look at this, we've got to do something that we call hermeneutics. You guys remember the term hermeneutics? We looked at that. Hermeneutics is a big, fancy word. It's just how we interpret Scripture. So there's a couple of different ways that we do this. We call them exegesis and we call them eisegesis, okay? Exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, eisegesis, E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. The two terms here are talking about, do we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture? That's exegesis. Or do we take the eisegetical approach where we have an idea and we go and what we do, proof texting. Now, we all do both in one way or another, whether we like to ever admit it or not, because we all have had an idea, and then we go and we kind of find proof text. You guys ever had a theological belief that you were wrong on at any point in your life, ever? Or am I the only one? I mean, surely I'm not alone, right? We all had a belief that we held to that was incorrect, that we later get proven incorrect. And hopefully you've done that with Scripture. But if we take an exegetical uh, uh, approach, that means we're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we're going to use that to build the basis for what we call theology. So whatever that belief is, it should be true from the Old Testament all the way throughout the New Testament. It should be able to stand uh, scrutiny. No matter how you look at it, it should be consistent. So when we begin to look at the book of Hebrews, that is going to be very important. We know that the book of Hebrews is written to a Jewish family. Or not family, but a Jewish people. Why do we know that? Well, a couple of reasons. First thing that we can ask is, when we're doing hermeneutics, who wrote the book? And who was it written to? We're going to start with who it was written to. It was written to the Hebrews. That's pretty simple. The name of it. It says that. So we know that it was written to them. It talks about to us, the fathers, the 12 tribes. It talks about all these things. Peter, in his writing, talks about the sojourners of the dispersion. These are all Jewish vernacular that are used about these believers. The Gentile world did not have the 12 fathers, the 12 tribes. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. It is specifically referring to Israel. So, who was it written by? Who was it written to? In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, it says, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desire to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. Now, when we get into this, you're going to see a Christology here because there is a dilemma. The one thing that we have to understand is that the Jews at this time are uh, believing Jews, born again Christian Jews, are facing absolutely intense persecution. They are being killed. James, I believe, at this point that this is written, has already been killed. I believe. I, don't quote me on that, but I think that's correct. We see Stephen in the book of Acts. He's killed. We know that Paul later is killed. So this is what's going on. He's talking about, I urge you this, that I may be restored to you. Whoever the writer of this was is writing it in a way saying that I wish, because we believe that this person was in prison 
during the time that he wrote this. It is getting into some of the, the Greek language here. So we've got to understand, uh, trying to figure out who wrote this book. We know who it was written to. It was written to the Hebrews. Hebrew believers. That's key. It's not just written to non-believers. It's written to believers. And as you get into it, as you read it, anybody read it today by chance to get a chance to read it? Good. Um, Because as you read it, if you keep that in the back of your mind, that this is written to the Jews. Because remember, every book was written to somebody by somebody at a certain time and place in history. And that matters. Is that when we see this, then we'll begin to understand some of the terminology just being thrown around. So who wrote it? There are numerous arguments. There's nothing that's been argued about more than this. Here are some of the possible authors. They believe it was Apollos, it was possibly Luke. Clement of Rome wrote it. A guy named Silas, right, Paul and Silas. Philip, Stephen, Jude, Epaphras, Timothy, Priscilla, Mary, Paul. No Peter, Paul, Mary, nothing? Okay. Mary, the mother of Jesus. How do they come up with these ideas? Because I'm going to tell you that we can figure this out. I believe that I can show you very vividly, just using Scripture, who wrote this book. And I'll show you how we can do that. But all of these guys are believed um, to have written it by different, different scholars today. You know what the, the overwhelming... Uh, how many of you guys think... Who do you, who do you think wrote it? I mean, just show of hands. Have you ever thought about it? you ever wondered? you ever... Anybody have a guess? You say Paul, okay? Anybody else? You shaking your head no on Paul, or you're not? You say not Paul. Maybe Timothy, okay? Okay. Right now, Apollos is leading the way currently, from what I can tell. Paul was believed for many years, and you'll see that here in a moment. But but uh, right now, it's Apollos. It seems to be the overwhelming belief. There are a lot of people that really do believe that it was Mary, and so we can get this. Here's what's that. Priscilla's another one. Yeah, absolutely. And because Priscilla educated Apollos. And here's what we know. Whoever the author was, they were highly educated. Because the thing is, we know what the word rhetoric means. This was taught in Alexandria. And it was the equivalent of a PhD today was to study rhetoric back then. They would do this up in Alexandria. And of course, where was Apollos from? He was from Alexandria. And that's why they think this, because there are over 20 different rhetorical techniques used throughout the book of Hebrews, and I'll kind of try to point those out as we go. We're not going to get off into the weeds onto that kind of stuff. This is stuff that people write their doctorates, dissertations on, of the different use of rhetoric in the book of Hebrews. Doesn't that sound like a fun paper? So he was highly educated, or she was highly educated, whoever it was. The author knew the Old Testament and was a very powerful preacher of it. Because in Hebrews, it's 13 chapters long. It sums up the entirety of the Old Testament in a nutshell. There are 35 direct quotes that come out of the Old Testament, and there are another 34 allusions to the Old Testament. Now, who is somebody off the top of your head, off of this list that you can think that could possibly be somebody who knew the Old Testament extremely well and could have written this book? Paul, who else? Think of the book of Acts. Possibly Luke. Now, Luke's a Gentile. Luke likely did not know all the history of the Jews. We believe he's a Gentile. Some don't think that, but... Apollos, yeah, absolutely. What about Stephen? Yeah. 
Book of Acts, Stephen, what does he do before he is stoned? He lays out an incredible message of how the Jews in their entire history had rejected every prophet that had sent to them. And now the Messiah was here and they rejected him also. This is one of the reasons they believe that it was Stephen. Now I think Stephen died too early for this to possibly happen, but maybe. The other thing that we know about it, he was a leader, a Christian leader, who was extremely persecuted. And that list, you could pick anybody on that list, with probably the exception of Mary. But we don't know. So, well, let's look at this. Who could it not be? We think Timothy, right? Let's look at this. Hebrews 13, verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see if he comes shortly. Does that sound like Timothy writing that? You'd think all these really smart people with all these letters next to their name would pick up on that, but they miss it. Yeah. It, there are a lot of people that believe this, but that he's referenced in it, in the third person. So it, it obviously cannot be him. Now, the other one, as I said, it was Apollo. So let's look at Apollos here. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, where this rhetoric was taught, extremely well thought of school up there, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, he came to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is where Timothy will ultimately pastor. Church of 50,000 people. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what does that mean? What did he know through the baptism of John? Repentance and salvation, right? That's what John taught. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What do you think primarily we're talking about here? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when he desired to cross Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. This is one of the reasons that people believe that it is a possibly Apollos. Because he was a well-educated man from Alexandria, the place where this rhetoric was taught. He vigorously refused the Jews publicly, and whoever, when you get into the book of Hebrews, that is strong words that are being thrown out there. This is not some pansy preacher that we see on TV today. This guy is laying it out. And so that is one of the main reasons that they believe that is possibly um, Apollos. Others that are Priscilla, they suggest that Priscilla, because she was the wife of Aquila, there's really no evidence of that. Um, we know that Timothy was with Paul, so I mean, that, that's a possibility. Um, the primary belief for a lot of years had been Paul. They really believed that it had been Paul. Clement of Alexandria, he lived from 152 to 215. He thought that Paul wrote, wrote the book of Hebrew originally, but Luke, and he wrote it in Hebrew. But Luke translated it from Hebrew into Greek. Luke would have been capable of doing that. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, he was hired by a man named Theophilus to do that. So he thought that Paul was behind the original work. Luke translated into Greek because they're in a Greek culture. Now, why would, if that is true, and we don't know if it was because we don't have that, but why would Paul write that in versus Greek? You're writing specifically to the Hebrews. But remember, a lot of the Hebrews then probably didn't speak Hebrew. Most of them spoke Greek. So... It would, it would be a tough sell to me 
that the whole write it in Hebrew and, and Luke translated to Greek. But I wouldn't say it's impossible. Uh, one, if you were dealing with some of the Pharisees who were the higher up and stuff, they likely spoke Hebrew. But your average Jew spoke Greek. Um, another guy, uh, Origen, he lived from 185 to 253. He thought it was written by Paul also. Um, he wrote a statement said, but who wrote the epistle in truth? God knows. Only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. So he wasn't 100% sold on it but he did believe that it was paul uh in the western side there is which centered around the city of rome uh they didn't hold to paul being the author of hebrews until about the fifth century that's when rome started adopting that idea a guy named tertullian believed that it was barnabas you know there's just a lot of these guys the reason they think it was barnabas is barnabas came from the lines of the levites so he had all the priestly imagery that was in there the levites would know because the levites were the priests so there's a lot of these guys. There was a presbyter named Gaius. Uh, he doesn't include Hebrews in the list of what Paul wrote. We know the books that Paul wrote primarily because he put his name on them. This is the only one that's unsigned. This is why we don't know who wrote it. We know who it's to. We just don't know who wrote it. So uh, another guy named Eusebius. Now here's a quote from him. And as to the epistle to the Hebrews, he says that it is Paul's, but that it is written to the Hebrews in the Hebrew language, and that Luke translated it carefully and published it to the Greeks, that consequently there is found the same color with regard to style in this epistle and in the Acts. But that is not prefaced by Paul the Apostle with good reason, for, says he, as he was sending it to the Hebrews, who had conceived a prejudice against him and suspected him, he very wisely did not repel them at the beginning by appending his name. This is Eusebius. Eusebius uh, lived in the early 200s, I believe. Here's another one. Then he goes on to say, but as the blessed presbyter before now used to say, since the Lord was sent to the Hebrews as being the apostle of the Almighty, Paul, out of modesty, as having been sent to the Gentiles, does not inscribe himself apostle of the Hebrews, both because of the honor due the Lord and because of the being of the work of super, I don't know if I got that right, super arrogation. I'm not sure that I got the right word in there, that he wrote also to the Hebrews being herald and apostle of the Gentiles. So basically the argument he is making is the reason he didn't sign it is he was the apostle to the Gentiles, which he was. That was his calling, right? He also went to the Jews. He went to the synagogue, every city he went in, and he went there first. So again, does Eusebius know for sure? No, he doesn't. Because nobody knows for sure except the person that wrote it. Um, a guy named Augustine, you guys know him, and a guy named Jerome, both thought Paul wrote it. They were in the 300s and the 400s. I mean, there's a lot of these different guys and stuff that we look at this and we, we think, okay, this, this could be him. Primarily, though, I believe that it was Paul, and I'm going to show you why here tonight. We're going to get through that, and we're going to look at a few other things, and then and we'll be done for tonight. But the bottom line is, is I think that it is Paul. Now, here's the thing. When we look at what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And we don't need to read the rest of this. Who were the pilgrims of the dispersion? It was the Jews. They dispersed. It was persecution. They spread around. That's what was going on. Now, so we know who Peter wrote to. He primarily dealt with the Jews because there's not a Gentile that would fall into this category unless they were proselyte. Unless they had rejected everything, they might fall into that category. But realistically, if they weren't blood Jews, they were probably okay. In 2 Peter chapter 3, this is where it starts to get interesting. In 2 Peter 3, verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. To whom? The Jews. 
as also in all his epistles, speaking them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now let's think about this for a minute. We know that there's a lot of false writing with what we call pseudopigrapha, written in the name of these people. Thessalonians is a perfect example of that. Because in Thessalonians, Paul is addressing the church of Thessalonica and letting them know, listen, Jesus hasn't returned. You did not miss the rapture. You're going to be fine. That's just an example. So Peter here is saying, again, let's look at this here. Paul, according to the wisdom that was given him, has written to you, and who is he dealing with? The Jews. Go through his epistles. Which ones were addressing the Jews? Really none of them. Specifically. Okay? Speaking of them, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scriptures. Now you notice what, what Peter is making an allusion here. The writings of Paul are looked at as Scripture. Now what's one of the arguments we hear against the New Testament? Is it was put together by man... And about the 4th century with the Council of Nicaea, I believe that was that one, right? And they got together and said, okay, let's put these books in. We want them. Well, according to Peter, everything that Paul had written, which we have record of in the New Testament, was already looked at as Scripture because he's referencing his writings there. You guys see what I'm saying? I want to make sure that's very clear. So that whole thing can be debunked simply from Scripture. Paul talks about Luke's writing somewhere about it being Scripture. You guys with me so far? Okay, let me show you why I think that it is Paul that wrote this. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is the end of the second letter of the Thessalonians. It says, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and everywhere. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, what did he just say? We don't need to get in all the Thessalonians books to, to figure this out. What is a salutation? It's a reading, right. He's ending the letter. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in how many of his epistles? Every one of them. Well, what is the salutation? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. He says it's in every epistle that I write. You guys see what I'm saying here? Let's go through these. How many epistles did Paul write that we know for sure? 13 is the number. 13 is the number. In case you didn't know, that it leaves this book out, the book of Hebrews. All right, let's look at this. Romans 16, 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Written by Paul. We know that, right? Because he signed it. 1 Corinthians 16, 23 and 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's another one. There's another one, 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. He's getting a little wordy here on us. He's, you know, it's his third closing, I guess. Galatians 6, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen. Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Philippians 4, 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Are you guys picking up on a trend? I'm not done. Colossians 4.18, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you. Amen. Whose hand? Paul's hand. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. We've already read 2 Thessalonians. Let's go on to Timothy 6.21, by professing it, some have a straight concerning the face, grace be with you. Amen. 
2 Timothy 4.22, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, grace be with you, amen. How about Titus? All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith, grace be with you all, amen. How about Philemon? Just to not leave it out, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, amen. Do we see a trend here? He said that my salutation, which is on all of my epistles, right, which we just went through all 13, we didn't leave any of them out, every single one of them. What does Hebrews say? Grace be with you all. Amen. Boy, that looks like Paul's writing to me. Now, does that mean that that is Paul's writing? Not necessarily. I believe it is Paul, and this is why I believe it's Paul. I think he left in the letter of Thessalonians a series of breadcrumbs, if you will. That if we just sit there and look at what he said, that this was his salutation that's in all his epistles, and we see the same thing in all this epistle. Is it in any other epistles written by anybody else? It is not. This word grace is only used by Paul with the exception of Peter uses it once in a different context. Not the same thing. So is this a pretty darn good sign? It is to me. But again, unless he's specifically like, written by Paul... We cannot say definitively, and I don't lose sleep over it. I don't frankly care. I believe it was Paul. Okay? You guys all follow me. Anybody have any thoughts or comments on that before we go any further? Nothing. Janet, who do you think it is? Yes, unbelieving Jews. Right. Right, and and we tend to think that whoever wrote it was in prison or in some sort of a persecution during that time, where it was. A lot of people look at it as a sermon. Yeah. Possibly. It's possibly. Well, and that's just the thing. It has that salutation, which is the marker of Paul, and not used by anybody else. Now, again, somebody being highly intelligent picking up on that may have put it in here. So I will not say definitively. I do believe it is Paul. We don't care. It's in the Bible. There's a reason that it's there. So this is Paul's personal mark. Okay. This is primarily that what, what we're looking at. So you guys follow me on that. We do not know who wrote it. This is the only book that we don't know who wrote it uh, in the New Testament, I should say. So when we look at this, part of understanding the context of something, we want to understand who wrote it and who it was written to. We know it was written to the Jews. We know it was written by an individual who knows about Jewish history. If you read through it, it the, the use of language, the use of illustrations, talking about the temples and the inner working, your average Gentile person and your proselyte Gentile would never I should never say never. Likely would not know that information. Not in depth such as that. So, you're, I'm telling you guys, what we just went through is so hotly debated. Now, to me, it's pretty obvious. And the reason I do that is I, I want Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
And I know what they say. You know, they talk about this was likely a sermon. That's one of the things. Paul would have been nowhere near the area. That doesn't hold water to me because he wasn't near a lot of areas when he wrote to them. So that part doesn't mean as much to me. Um, but when we look at some of these things and these, these clues, I mean, we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues as an example. When we look at that, we don't put that together by any individual verse. We look at the pattern throughout the book of Acts and we're like, okay, we have here. I see the same thing here. I see a pattern developed that's used by Paul and only used by Paul. And to me, that is a key. But again, I won't get too hung up on it. So when we get into the last part that I want to talk about today, we got to get into a big, fancy theological word. Because Hebrews is all about this. Soteriology. Does anybody know what that means? Besides you, I know you knew because I just told you. Soteriology. You ever heard that word before? Okay, anytime you put the word ology on something, it is the study of. The word soterio, or soteria, I can't remember exactly what it is. It's the study of salvation. The study of salvation. So, you probably heard the word pneumatology. Pneuma meaning Holy Spirit. Study of the Holy Spirit, just as an example. Soteriology. In the book of Hebrews, and this is where it gets debated, you run into essentially um, all sorts of arguments. Can a believer lose their salvation? Many will say yes, and the reason they'll do that is out of Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. And I will explain those in depth when we get there, because I disagree with that view. When we come to the idea of soteriology and salvation, there are basically three views. Okay, The Calvinistic view, the Arminian view, and the partaker view, and I'll explain that. That one may not be familiar with you, but you guys, primarily all of us, would likely fall into that one. So, the reason I'm going through this is because these are terms I'm likely going to use as we go throughout, and I just want to make sure everybody is at least familiar with it. You don't need to be an expert in it. So, let's look at this first one. Calvinism, what is it? Well, Calvinism has a, um, an acronym, is that the word? Yeah, TULA. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Let me break this down. So remember, this is five points Calvinism. You guys ever heard that term used before? Churches that believe this type of thing are your Reformed church. Um, they believe it. You'll get in some of your mainline denominations. will have a, a sense of that in it. Um, I'm sorry? Presbyterians. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect one. Presbyterian. Yeah. Yeah. So... I'll explain this, what these words mean. The total depravity of man, that means man has nothing in them that is good. Nothing. Okay? You bring nothing to the table when it comes to the idea of salvation at all. Unconditional election means that God chooses who is going to be saved. And on the flip side, he also chooses who is going to be damned. And you have no say in it. What's that? predestination. You get no vote in it. If God chose you to go to heaven, you will go to heaven. If He chose you to go to hell, you go to hell. Alright? That's not a biblical thing at all, but we'll get into that later. Limited atonement, it takes the idea that the atonement of Jesus Christ, the price that was paid, was it for all the world or for just the elect? According to this, it's just the elect. Now, now that's hard to reconcile with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him. It doesn't say that whoever God chose ahead of time. But the atonement of God is not a universal atonement. 
It is a limited atonement chosen only for the elect. Now, don't misunderstand that word universal because there's a belief out there today. It's not a new one, but it's just gotten popular in the last 10 years of where when God, Jesus died for the whole world, everybody gets in. Doesn't matter what you believe. Okay? It's nonsense, but that's what's out there. Irresistible grace. What that means is that if you're one of the elect, try as you might, you cannot resist the grace of God. You can go and live as hellish as you want, but that grace will draw you in and you will go to heaven. And then the perseverance of the saints, this is where we get the idea of once saved, always saved. Okay? And I agree with that statement. However, in the perseverance of the saints, again, it's just the elect. And even if, here's how they would, they would flip this around. If you go into a sinful lifestyle after you've come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and you are one of the elect, one of two things is going to happen. A, is it doesn't matter because you're one of the elect and you're going to get in no matter what you do. Or B, you weren't one of the elect, you just thought you were, and so you were never saved to begin with. You guys follow me on that? Are there any problems with this idea? I know I'm not painting it very rosy. That's because I, I vehemently oppose this. If you didn't know this, uh, I found this out during God and Man. There is a, a gentleman that was from here that is, was one of the um, most well-known reformed authors of his time, Lorraine Bettner. I bought his book after I found out about it, as a matter of fact. He had books that went all over the world. He was from Rockport. He died in 1991 or 1992. He was a well-known reformed theologian. Yeah, so you knew about him. I had never heard of him. Anybody else ever hear of him? Lorraine Bettner. So I would assume he's related to the Bettners here somehow. Uh, he went to Linden Church, I believe. So, died in the early 90s. So, that's it in a nutshell of Calvinism. Everybody understand that, the basics of it. We're not going to get into the weeds too much on it, but I want you to have a, just an overview of it. Just remember Tulip. There, of course, are just like there are any other belief out there, there are offshoots of each one. They there would call themselves Calvinists, but not five-point Calvinists. So they'll take, I like two out of three. I like three out of five. I like this one, not that one. John Calvin, this is what he believed. One thing to know about John Calvin, the guy that started, he was extremely anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. He thought they were a weed to the earth and that they were the ones that killed Christ. Who killed Christ? You and I did. You and I did. All right, so that's Calvinism in a nutshell. Let's look at Arminianism. In Arminianism, they believe that their justification can be lost, that believers are in danger of losing their salvation as a result of sinful behavior, that the believer's eternal security rests in Christ's work and the individual decision to continue in the faith and not fall away, works plays a key role in the re retaining of salvation. Is that a biblical statement? It is not. It is not. Well, it's, it smells of Catholicism, right? They probably believe something like this. So, it is faith plus works. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, okay? So we've got three terms that we've got to look at underneath of soteriology and the book of Hebrews. 
The first one is justification. The second one is sanctification. The last one is glorification. These are the three parts of salvation. When a person is born again, and I know most of you guys know this, but just so everybody's on the same page, we are justified. Janet's got a great term. She says, just if I never sinned. I love that because it's exactly what it is. We, at this point, when we are born again, we are now separated from the penalty of sin. Because Jesus took that penalty on Himself at the cross, thus defeating death. And how do we have death? Sin brought death into the world. So, in order to be justified, one must be born again. Now, you'll notice the Catholics will use the term justification, if you're familiar with their theology at all, in what the definition of sanctification is. So, what is sanctification? Well, this is where we are separated from the power of sin. So, here we're born again. We are as right with God as we are ever going to be. We cannot get more right. I don't care how much money you give. I don't care how much Bible you memorize. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care what money you give. I don't care about any prayer times, all of that kind of stuff. You are saved. That's the end of it. But sanctification is where the works come into play and we begin to get separated from the power of sin and we are now beginning to be transformed into the image of God on this earth. We're transformed into His image bearer spiritually. We are new creation. But at this point, we get it. So think about Ephesians 2. I don't have this in here, but let me read this to you. Because this is between Ephesians 2 and James, the book of James. It often gets confused, and we get these terms mixed up, and we don't even realize we're doing it. Ephesians 2, uh, let's go verse 8, for by grace, what is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. Here's a gift for you, you've done nothing to earn it, okay? You have been saved through faith. How do we get saved? God's gift through our belief, that's what faith is. And that not of yourselves, so nothing that we did, it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we could stop there, but we shouldn't stop there, because we've got to look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. We're created for good works, not by good works. In James chapter 2, I believe it is, let me get over there real quick. Let me see if I can find that real quick. James, come here, James. Um, okay, uh, let's start. I think I'm going to start in 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without, let me see. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and you tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? What did that just say to us? Faith without works is dead. But did that disagree with Ephesians chapter 2. Now your default answer is going to be no because you know it can't. It's not supposed to. Right? I had a Mormon bring this verse up. What do Mormons believe? Well, one, they do not believe in the God that, that, of the Bible at all. They're completely whacked out. They will claim that they do, but if you really get them grilled down on it, they will separate. But they will turn to this because they believe in a works 
righteousness, of which that is why they go on a two-year mission, that they hoped that they too can at some point be gods and make spirit babies, just like the Father has done, and that was with the Son, and that the Father had relations with Mary, creating Jesus, and Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. This is all their theology. It's really weird. I know it does not come from the Bible. But they will say, you see, if you do not have works, you do not have faith. Is that what it said? No. It says, you show me your faith by your works. By the things you do are a result of the faith that you already possess. In other words, I'm not, it has said nothing about salvation. It's talking about my beliefs are uh, done as a result of the change that is in, within me. That lines up scripturally. We aren't saved by good works. We are saved to good works. We are saved for good works that were preordained for the foundation of the world. Not saved by them. We are only saved by one work. That was the work of Jesus. That was it. You guys following me? Is anybody confused on this? Because I know it can get into the weeds a little bit. I don't want to do that. So here, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Here, we're saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has control over us. The last one is we are saved from the presence of sin. That when we are glorified into uh, the eternal salvation of God, that sin will no longer be around us. You guys following me? So, these are the three terms. As I said, the Catholics, Roman Catholics, because you guys realize that we are all Catholic. Catholic means universal. It's the church of God. Roman Catholic is what we got a problem with. Because that has left biblical grounds many, many years ago. They will take the justification terminology and put it on the sanctification uh, definition. Or the word, I should say. So, in other words, they'll take this word and put it on the definition of this word. So they'll say that we are saved by our good word. Yes, Jesus died, but you realize that every time they take communion, they call it the Eucharist, they believe that they are sacrificing Jesus again for the sins that had happened. That his, through what they call transubstantiation, that that bread and that wine become the actual body and blood of Christ that we must consume because Jesus said, I am the bread. This is my body. It says, this is my blood. They say, see, it actually is his body and his blood. And then I ask them, like, what did he mean when he says, I am the door? They don't have an answer for that one. I don't know what they do with that. So, but these are it. So again, when we look at this, we got to understand it. How are we saved? It's the new covenant that the Father and the Son cut amongst themselves on our behalf. What do we do for it? Not a darn thing. Our soteriology is that we are born again by grace through faith in Christ alone that is it. But from that point, that's where our works come in. What do our works begin to look like? They are a reflection of the new creation that we are inside. Because the power of sin is no longer over us because that is being taken away and we begin to look like Christ. And I think we all could say we've experienced that in our own lives, but likely we have seen that in others. And I've told you stories of people that I've known in the past who when they've given their life to Christ, I mean, it was amazing, the transformation, if you want you got something to add, or just stretching, okay. Um, so, and then ultimately, this is where we're going to be, the glorification of our body. So we've got Calvinism, and we've got Arminianism. Who believes in Arminianism? Anybody that essentially, the biggest takeaway here is you can lose your salvation. The Assemblies of God believe this. Yep, ask them. And they will use Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 as their proof text for this. In fact, let me just read that to you guys real quick. How are we doing on time? Okay, we're just about done. Uh, let me just go read those two passages just so you can hear them. 
I'm not going to explain them. I got to find it. Where is it? Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. It sound like you can lose your salvation? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 10. And... Uh, verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no, lo- no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour our adversaries. Sound like we can lose salvation? That's what it sounds like. That's not what it says. We'll get into that when we get there. Bottom line is, is that is what they believe. So the assemblies of God is one. Um, I've so much has heard somebody go as far as to say something along this line, that if you were speeding on your way to church and you died in a car wreck, you would go to hell. How many of you guys have died in a car wreck on their way here? Yoli would be going to hell. Have you ever watched Yoli take the corner into the parking lot? I mean, it's power slide, right? It's... It's impressive. We're all sitting there in Bible study. There's a cloud of dust that comes up, and we're like, oh, Yoli's here. Yeah, yeah, and you're the one facing the window, too. Absolutely. Yep, I mean, it is, it's, it's impressive. It's, it's definitely impressive. So, but that's just an example. And they'll go so far to say, if you miss church, you'll go to hell. You guys ever heard of snake handling churches? Okay, as crazy as that is, they believe this. That if you're not in church, you're out of faith in God. Well, think about it. If you get bit by a snake and you don't die, it's because of the power of God. But if you did die, it's because your faith wasn't in God. It's not because you got bit by the snake. That has nothing to do with it. Right. Well, it's circular reasoning. It's kind of like Calvinism. How do you know, how do you have assurance of salvation if you're a Calvinist? You can't. Because how do you with 100% certainty know that you are one of God's chosen? Now, they will talk a big game. And there are, I mean, again, don't misunderstand me. There are some really good believers that have some incredible teaching. John MacArthur, Calvinist. Um, I disagree with a lot of what he says, but he's, he has got a brilliant mind when it comes to Scripture on a lot of things. Um, but it comes from that Reformed camp. So he's not a guy that I recommend, you know, hey, go pick up all his books. But, but, I mean, he's an example. He's got some great stuff, but, you know, on the gifts of the Spirit, he is way out to lunch and on, obviously, this Calvinistic idea. What assurance? Why would you go and do evangelism? Because nobody's wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm one of the elect. Who are the elect? Who is the chosen people of God throughout the entirety of Scripture? When did that change? Exactly. 
That's my point. It should be able to stand scrutiny throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't get these just new concepts out of the blue. The idea of salvation and things like that wasn't just completely out of the blue new concept. It was prophesied. It was spoken of in the Old Testament. So, again, we should be able to have this all the way throughout. So, that's Calvinism. That's Arminianism. We get an idea. Let's talk about this last one. We'll be done. We call this the partaker. I don't know who came up with this term. We believe in eternal security. That means that because our salvation is not based off of anything that we do, then what can we do to make it go away? If you can't be good enough to earn it, how can you be bad enough to lose it? This is why I do believe in eternal security. However, I would not be so hard-hearted to say that if somebody chooses intentionally to walk out of the covenant with God, saying, God, I now reject you, I don't want your salvation, all that, I don't know that I'd go so far to say that that would take them out or wouldn't take them out. I'm gray on that area. But you can't sin your way out of it. Let's put it that way. Because you did not do good works to get your way in it. You guys with me? You're thinking. The unpardonable sin. Can we commit the unpardonable sin today? Can we commit the unpardonable sin today? In today's day in history. How? If that's the thing. But it wasn't just the rejection of Jesus. It was a national thing when the Messiah was on the earth and they were calling the works of the Holy Spirit the works of Satan. I don't think we can actually even commit the unpardonable sin today. But if we can, it is the rejection of Jesus. If we can. And again, it doesn't specify specifically. What's that? But you would have, right, right, right. But I, I, I'm talking throughout life. Like, I, I just completely reject Jesus. I'm never going to turn away and stop. There's, right, and I agree with you. See, I think the unpardonable sin, again, this is a lot of church stuff that gets blown out of proportion through time. Look at what it was. It was the Pharisees who should have known better. Nation of Israel was judged as a result of not recognizing the Messiah. That's why the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Jesus said this was going to happen. He cried as he walked in there because he was so heartbroken, because they should have known. Nicodemus is getting in trouble as a Pharisee, the teacher of the law, because they did not know the things that Jesus was talking about, and he should have. And then they're calling the very works of God the works of Satan. Now, why is that a big deal? Because of the four messianic miracles that he had performed, that were a sign to the Jews that only the Messiah could do this, and he did them, and yet they still said and rejected him. I don't think we can commit the unpardonable sin today because I think that it was something specifically to them in that time. It couldn't be done again today. Right. Absolutely they did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. By the nation. They did it. It's like when we read Revelation and we're like, guys, come on. After all of this, you still throw your fist against God? Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's God, I know this is what you said. But absolutely, it's all through history. So it's no doubt. 
But the Pharisees should have known better. And they, they, it wasn't that they didn't know. They were on purpose denying what was right in front of them because they were paying off the guards at the tomb. They were trying to kill Lazarus because he was evidence that this is the Messiah. Remember, that's the whole fourth day miracle of raising the dead. You know, um, that when they believed that uh, the spirit of the man stayed with the body until the third day, and Jesus waited, and he said, it's better for you that I wait than we go right now. And this is on the fourth day they go, and they say, don't open it, it's going to smell in there, which it, it would have smelled in there. And Jesus crying, but he goes in there and he does it, proving again that he was the Messiah. So that's part of it. Well, the difference between this and the other views, and this is where I fall, and I bet most of you guys fall here. We believe in eternal security. We believe that you might be able to consciously choose to get out of that covenant. I, I, will, gr I will grant that. I think it's not likely, but I, I would grant that. There's a distinguish between entering and inheritance. And what I'm telling you is that is what the book of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Not the rejection and that we don't get in, but there is a reward system set by God. Those crowns that we throw at the feet of Jesus don't come from anywhere. You see, there's a difference between entering into his kingdom and the inheritance we get as his children. You guys following me? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, and, and so the word that you're talking about is metakoi, which is where we get the idea of a, a partaker as a true child of God, is obligated by God to persevere. These are Paul's words, but he might not, right? You persevere in the faith. Finish your race with joy. All of this stuff. If he doesn't, it never says he forfeits his salvation. He faces divine discipline, and there will be a loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But you're still a son, so it's kind of like the idea is that I might invite you into my house, but you don't get to rearrange the furniture. You don't own it. You know? Like those of you that have kids that come back to visit, do they, yeah, like they come in like, yeah, this is my place. I'm taking over. Yeah, I mean, I, right, good for you. Maybe they'll visit less then. Quit bugging you. But does that make sense? Does everybody understand that? Because this is so crucial to wrap your head around as we get into the body of the text of what Hebrews is talking about. We have to know that it was written by a Jewish believer in somebody. I believe it's Paul. Jan who did you say you thought it was? You don't know. She knows that it's not Paul, but she doesn't know who it is. That's fine. Apollos. Well, impossibly, but even, I mean, even with the, for my thing with Apollos being from Alexandria, when you've got Clement of Alexandria saying he didn't write it, that was written by Paul, that's another guy that, right, it's like from there, the people in Alexandria didn't think the guy from Alexandria wrote it. I mean, I don't know about you, but if we had somebody famous from Rockport, we're going to, we're going to claim him for everything. Or we had Lorraine Bettner, good for us, yeah. So I'm sure he was a great guy. This is the Greek word here uh, that we use for the word partaker, believe, or something like that, medikoi. Anyway, but, but again, Looking at this and understanding it, going in the context, by a Jewish person to Jewish believers in the faith, contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, the temple, the sacrifice, the priesthood, with who is our great high priest, who was the ultimate sacrifice that paid the price for us that we could be justified. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin. So go and kill all the animals you want, 
The sacrifice has been paid. You can't go back to this whole system. What I'm telling you is the reason that that is being said is because these people were facing such intense persecution that just to get along, by, and they were getting persecuted by the Jews, by their brethren, that they wanted to just start sacrificing again just to get these people off their back. And that's what's going on. And so as we get into this and we get into the body of the text, that's the context that we have to understand is this is what's happening here. And if you can keep that in mind as you read it, you will have no trouble with this book. One more thing I'll say on that and then I'll stop. There are 13 chapters in the book of Hebrew. If you want to take any idea out of the book of Hebrews, you need to read all 13 chapters to catch the context of what's being said. In some of Paul's writings, you can say, oh, if I read these two chapters, here's this topic, and then he goes on to this topic. That is not true of Hebrews. Start to finish, it is one continual letter. May have been a, uh, a sermon as preached. You know, I mean, we don't know for sure. All we know is if you want it in context, you've got to read the whole thing. So if somebody comes to you with Hebrews 6 and says, hey, well, this says we can lose our salvation. Okay, good. Go start at 1, and when you get done with 13, come talk to me again. Because that's the only way you're going to get it right. There's no other way. Any questions, comments about tonight? Anything at all? I know that was a lot. Anybody's head hurt yet? <laughs> well, we won't go there. Any prayer requests? Anything we can be praying for? Okay, yeah, keep that. Guys, keep Isaac in your prayers. He needs our prayers. He's just struggling down there. Part of it is loneliness. Um, financially, he's struggling. You know, we just pray that, that God gets a hold of him. He finds another job that pays more than what he's making now. Um, you know, just be praying for him. He just needs our prayer. He's doing okay. Uh, we had a great time down there with him, but he, he needs our prayers. So, and, and if you guys get a chance, reach out to him. I mean, just hearing from people back home just means the world to him. So if you get that opportunity, please do that. So uh, if there's no other questions and stuff, then let's pray and we will go home.